Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle envies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history, because history has never been as straight as you think. My name is Gretchen. And I'm Lee. And we are back from a very long hiatus. Yes! Hey! Hey, everybody! Thank you for being patient with us as we've uh, failed to get on a regular schedule once again. But we're back. We promise we're not gone. Life is just, just messy and busy and super fun. But we have an episode for you, and it's Halloween again. So, yay! yay. It's not a Halloween-themed episode, but we're just excited that it's spoopy time. Yes, spoopy time is the best time. Yes. I am one of the spoopy queers. That is what I am. (laughs) It's like the only holiday I care about. (laughs) (laughs) Mood. (laughs) So, this time we're going to be talking about homosexuality in pre-modern Japan. Yay! Yeah, this is an episode that we had planned for before we went on hiatus and then went on hiatus and then came back to it and went, oh man, I don't remember any of this stuff. I gotta reread everything. Gotta redo our research. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Not that we mind. A couple of Ravenclaws are like, oh no, I have to do more work. I have to do more of the homework I assigned myself. Uh, yeah, right, because it's not like we're doing this for school. Yeah. This is just fun, kids. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to be going into going more into detail about homosexuality in Japan in later periods in a future episode or two, because there's some really fascinating stuff from the post-war period, and that will include more focus on the experience of queer women. But today's episode will be focusing on medieval feudal Japan and the way that male-male sex and relationships evolved from a monastic tradition to a burgeoning capitalist economy. Hey, gosh, that that sounds somewhat familiar. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. A little bit. I wonder where from. Gosh. Maybe an episode that we already did. What? So... Uh, content warnings. There are content warnings. We will be discussing pederasty and some pretty graphic discussions of sexual activity between men and between men and boys. So because, as you will learn, Japan was not shy about talking very explicitly about what was going on. So yes, if this is something that you makes you uncomfortable or you don't particularly want to engage in, this might be an episode to skip. And we just want to let you know that that's going to be coming down the pipeline. But there's also some really beautiful poetry. Yes. So we get both. Wee! Beautiful best of both worlds. I did not mean for that to be so alliterative. Good job, (laughs) me. (laughs) Uh, So today's going to be another concept-focused episode. We'll be bringing in some specific examples and stories, but we're going to be giving a wide overview. So we'll be going through that. And then, as usual, we will end the podcast with how gay were they, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight, quote-unquote. Yes. And, of course, by straight, we just mean not cis-heteronormative. Yes. 
not of the cis-heteronormative experience. Absolutely. We've got some new developments since we came back from hiatus. Uh, one is new merch. You may have noticed them in the store a little while ago, but we added some stickers with the Geographic Queers designs on them. So if you want something to decorate your laptop or your water bottle or your forehead, you can go and you can get those. They're delightful. I also found out that Printful can make phone cases. So we've got a logo phone case for you there. Um, If there's anything else y'all are like, I want the logo on this thing, then tweet at us and we could probably put it on there. There's like pillows. Do you want a History is Gay throw pillow? Go for it. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Shower curtain? (laughs) Shower curtain. I think you could get a shower curtain on there too. (laughs) I think you can get a shower curtain. Printful has added a whole (laughs) bunch of stuff. So you tell us what you want and we will throw it up there on the store. We also have a really exciting development. We've had some wonderful volunteers join onto the team to transcribe our old episodes. So they're slowly going through and getting some of them done. If you want to be a part of the group that is transcribing, episodes for us so that we can make our content accessible to folks who are hard of hearing or deaf. Uh, You can go on our website and click on transcriptions. There's a link to see where you can kind of become a part of the project and you can also see we have like the first episode fully transcribed and linked on our website. So you can check that out. But this is something that we wanted to do and and have had in the works for a long time. But as you could guess, with how long it took us to come back from hiatus, we just have had so many things that we we mm-hmm. we can't we can't add it to our plate right now doing it ourselves, even though we think it's really, really important. So volunteers yep. are going to be instrumental to this process. And thank you to everybody who has yes. lent their amazing time and energy to it. Yes, thank you. We appreciate your handiwork. Yeah. Hey. hey. So I think that's what we got. Yeah. Welcome back to us. Um, oh, last bit of information. Um, we will be continuing on a once a month schedule and we're actually going to change our release date a little bit so that it's a little bit more consistent. We're going to try to get episodes out on the 15th of the month going forward. So regardless mm. of what day of the week that is, that'll bring us straight into the middle of the month and that way we'll have a nice kind of buffer in between um yeah so look forward to that mm-hmm. Woo. so yeah gretchen you want to you want to kick us off with some context sure. yeah so as with all of our concept focused episodes we like to start with a little bit of context i mean we always do that anyway So for the Japanese timeline, there are several periods of time. The Heian period from 784 to 1185 uh, CE, excuse me, is the time of the imperial courts. It is also where we have the earliest references to homosexuality that we'll get into in a little bit. Following that was the Kamakura period from 1185 to 1333, which was followed by the Muromachi period, from 1333 to 1573, which was followed by the Azuchi Momoyama period from 1573 to 1603. So the period right at the tail end of this, the period between 1568 and 1603, was a turning point in Japanese history. After more than two centuries 
of being divided into various warring factions. For these kind of 30-odd years, Japan was united under a form of central rule, which was governed by three warlords in succession, Oda Nobunaga, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and Tokugawa Ieyasu. We specifically wanted to pinpoint this period because the policies of these warlords, especially the final one, Tokugawa Ieyasu, greatly influenced what would come to be in the next period of time, which is called Tokugawa Japan. The warlords' efforts to rein in the majority of samurai and sever their links to the peasantry is what created two distinct classes, and it was this kind of two-class system that led to the rapid growth of castle towns and the emergence of the bourgeois or middle class. So that leads us to the Edo period, which is what we're going to be talking about, which is from 1603 to 1868. And this is alternately known as Tokugawa period or the Tokugawa shogunate, when Japan was under the rule of the Tokugawa shogunate and the country's 300 regional daimyo, which is their word for barons, Um, This was the last feudal military-style government period of Japan before the Meiji Restoration and the return of imperial rule. Mm -hmm. So, yes, what's important to know here was specifically that last thing that we talked about in the Azuchi-Momoyama period, the separation of the warriors from the peasants. This was known as Hainobunri, which was the warrior-peasant separation, And this meant that the peasant class was disarmed. So they, all of their, you know, military arms were taken away. And the hereditary warrior class, which is the samurai, and that became the primary military force, or really the only military force in Japan. And it was also not only like separated from the peasants, but they really were moved into like fortified castle cities rather than being kind of spread out among the peasants in agrarian centers. So after this is when we, when people think of like samurai Japan, like this is what we're talking about, where Mm -hmm. the samurai sword became a status symbol, which was specifically and kind of exclusively wielded by the samurai class. So, you know, right around 1600, you have nationwide peace and a lot of prosperity and power became localized in the samurai military regime, which was seen as the highest class in the in this time period, which was uh, under Neo-Confucian ideology. The three other classes were peasants, merchants, and artisans. And each of these four classes were bound by their own laws and administration, and these were pretty strictly enforced. Um, over time, the samurai transitioned from being, you know, what was originally a military force to mostly being like a hereditary class of literate, peaceful bureaucrats. And Japan during this time had unprecedented peace and economic growth. But because of that, it was also a lot of change happening in the society. So one of those things was that samurai, over time, they lost money. They didn't have, you know, they, many of them might have, have been able to afford to have an official consort and, you know, the increased pressure to build new cities and have them protected by samurai meant you had a lot of unmarried men, young unmarried men, samurai living in these cities. Also around the beginning of this period, the warlord Hideyoshi established an officially licensed brothel quarter in Kyoto. So it was legally protected, uh, according to uh, Spanish visitors to Japan. Uh, so the accounts may be exaggerated, you know, because orientalism and exotification. But according to the Spanish, there were as many as 50,000 sex workers 
in this official quarter in Kyoto. So again, whether that number is correct or not, uh, Hideyoshi's policy became the norm in cities in Japan, with most big cities having a brothel quarter with strict fees and policies, and this quarter was called the floating world, the ukiyo. So these pleasure quarters became cultural centers as well, um, as well as locusts for pursuing sexual desires. So whether you were gay or straight or somewhere in between, this is where you would go to pursue your sexual desires. Uh, and because these centers were primarily driven by money, class distinctions in the patrons were less visible. Money talked, so the bourgeois class was able to partake of the same pleasures as the samurai and often sought to emulate, you know, kind of what the upper classes were doing. It's also important to note that the Japanese middle class never developed any form of puritanical beliefs about sexual pleasures really of any kind, regardless of whether it was homoerotic or heterosexual or it's they didn't have any kind of puritanical, you know, beliefs that many Western societies had. Merchants and wealthy commoners were the lowest class of citizen in the Tokugawa shogunate, which meant they didn't have any administrative role to play in the government. So instead, all they could do was like, get money, <laughs> get money and spend it on doing things they liked, which sounds great. <laughs> um... So, like, instead, they just, like, got money and spent a lot of it on whatever they felt like doing, which included going to the floating world. And the government didn't care because it meant nothing to them. It didn't impact the running of the administration in any way. And, in fact, any kind of, like, pearl clutching about sex would have actually gotten in the way of the administration <laughs> keeping this class of people happy. So... They had every reason to just be like, oh, they can do whatever they want. Let, let them have their orgies, whatever. <laughs> right. Instead of let them have cake, it was like, let them have sex. Just let them, you know, have let sex. them do whatever they want. <laughs> they can do whatever they want. Um, so we'll die. <laughs> Which, right? I mean, uh, amazing. To live in a society, a society like that. Wow. I know. <gasps> Where so people nice. are just free to live how they want as long as they're not hurting other people. What a concept! Imagine! Wow! So, we'll dive into this more later, but it's important to note now that the rise and prominence of male-male homosexuality within the samurai tradition took place as a lot of other social change was happening, which is what eventually led to the spread of nenshoku relationships beyond the warrior class of samurai. So yeah, that brings us to where did all this stuff come from? Gretchen mentioned nanshoku, which we will talk about very soon, but we wanted to preface it with where a lot of the ideas were coming from. So historical records concerning male-male homosexuality in early Japan are actually pretty obscure. So unlike what we saw in China, where tales of courtly homosexuality date all the way back to the Shang Dynasty in the 6th century, the Japanese record of these conventions, and its historical record in general, is pretty short. While the unified Japanese state emerged in the middle of the 4th century, the first text that we actually have that outlines Japanese history is the Kojiki, or Record of Ancient Matters, which was completed in 712 CE. And any mention of sex between men doesn't actually appear until the late 10th century. So we're dealing with a very small amount of material 
even though there's evidence to suggest that things were going on before the written record. So considering Mm -hmm. this, it's not a surprise that Japan inevitably ended up borrowing many cultural practices and ideals from China, the traditions of same-gender relations included. In fact, the Japanese term for male-male love and sex is the Japanese reading of the same characters in Chinese, which leads us to... It's nice to hear Lily's Lily's beautiful singing voice again. Hello. So yes, we have many different terms for you this episode because they're all related and knowing these words will inform the rest of the episode. So first up is one that Gretchen had mentioned before, nanshoku, which means male colors with the character of color having the implication of sexual pleasure. This is the Japanese reading of the same characters in Chinese. Uh, There's a genre of stories during the Tokugawa period devoted to discussing the virtues of pursuing male colors or female colors or following both paths. I feel like that's like a... So that's a new set of shirts for us. <laughs> yes. Yes. Male colors following both paths. Yes. Uh, so colors refers to sexual desire of an adult man towards young men, young women, or both, because patriarchy. Patriarchy. Women don't have their own sexuality. Da da da. Uh, (laughs) And the answer as to which is preferential seems to vary based on audience or the author's preference. Sometimes there's a preference for boys, sometimes women, sometimes both. Which is to say, like what you like and that's okay, but only if you're a grown-up dude. Right. Yep. They're the only ones with the sexuality. Da-da-da-da-da-da. If we sing it, it makes it less upsetting. Hey! That's why we have jingles. (laughs) Just to prevent us from, like crying for five minutes right. in our episodes it's great yeah <laughs> it's much easier it's much more fun to sing fuck colonialism than it is to like yell it really loudly although that is you know cathartic in its own way uh, yep. you want to mention the the next two yeah so the next term is wakashudo which means the way of adolescent boys which you'll hear us start to talk about when we start getting into the samurai. And then the shortened term for wakashudo, sometimes you'll just see the term shudo, which is an abbreviation of wakashudo. And the last one. Yes. This this one I, I added like at the last minute because I was like, oh, wait, I saw this in one of the books and I forgot about it. So just for fun, we've added chrysanthemum. Now, you might be thinking, why are you talking about a flower? Well, so the chrysanthemum was not only the emblem of the imperial family in Japan, but also was the most recognized and used symbol to discuss nanshoku. Guess why? I don't know, Lee. Tell us why. It looks like a butt. It looks Mm. like an anus. Uh, Ah. I'm just, I'm having very many Kurt Vonnegut feels with like... The asterisk or like yep. community just <laughs> all over the place. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are a couple of terms. Kiku no chigiri, which is translated as chrysanthemum tryst, and kiku asobi, chrysanthemum play, both meant homosexual intercourse. Trysts on top of chrysanthemum pattern fabrics were commonly depicted in erotic illustrations during the Tokugawa period, which you can see a couple of these on a website with all of our notes and fun stuff. I just love that flowers kind of universally come to symbol homosexuality. Like, the difference is just which flower. Right? Like, in Japan, it's chrysanthemums. We have, like, violets. Um, What was the other uh, one? Green green carnations. Green carnations. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone's just like, yeah, it's a flower. 
We just got to pick a flower. Yeah. But definitely flowers. And I mean, I guess you could stretch it with like, in China, we had the peach. You yes. Know, which flowers before it fruits. That is true. Ooh, beautiful. So anyway, back. It also looks like a butt. And also looks like a butt. We have <laughs> so many great emojis. Oh, yeah, because this episode, we also have the other emoji. <laughs> yes. Yes. Which we will get to we'll at the very end. We'll get to. Uh, spoiler alert. Ha, ha, ha. You'll have to wait for that one. Yeah. All right. So back to our regularly scheduled historical context. Woo! So we found it really interesting to note that early on, Japan believed that they had, quote, learned nanshoku from China and that it was, like we've expressed in some other societal examples, a foreign import. But this time it was something that was adopted as a refined practice to emulate instead of something being like, oh, the... The white colonialists brought it to us and is bad. We hate them, so hate don't them. be gay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so one of our primary, I mean, not a primary source, but one of our primary sources while we were reading is a book called Male Colors by a scholar named Gary Loop. And this quote talks about this kind of change or this, this different dynamic. He says, many societies have regarded the male-male sexuality in their own midst as a foreign import, and their view on homosexuality has been influenced by the nature of their relations with the foreign country concerned. The ancient Hebrews associated homosexuality with the pagan Egyptian and Canaanite cultures. The Greeks believed that they had, quote, learned pederasty from the Persians, etc. In these cases, homosexuality was linked with rival or enemy cultures. Such associations did not necessarily need to a negative view of male-male sexuality itself. The Greeks, for example, accepted pederastia despite its putative origins in an enemy land. Still, Greek men regarded the inserty role in anal sex as far more suitable for Persians than themselves. Oh, xenophobia. Direct quote. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yep. Here's where it's really interesting. The Japanese, unlike these other peoples, associated nanshoku with a neighboring empire only rarely seen as threatening, and one acknowledged, moreover, to have provided the models for much of Japan's high culture. Nanshoku, viewed as a component of this heritage, was a refined thing, a teaching, a way. So, of course, Japan's relationship with China would greatly shift throughout the years, uh, mm -hmm. but even through periods of tension, they never abandoned their positive and tolerant attitude toward Nanshoku. Mm -hmm. So, it's really important to know the significance of the influence that China's homosexual tradition in the imperial courts and onward had on the way male-male sexuality was discussed and written about in Japan. It was constantly being referenced and alluded to. Um... That being said, if you haven't listened to our episode, May I Hold Your Hand, we highly suggest you go do so. We don't have time to mm -hmm. recap all of it here, but basically everything that we read talking about homosexuality in Japan talked about how so much of it came from Chinese traditions. So please go back and listen to that episode. Yep. So the other potential, you know, cultural influence in Japan was Korea, and we hope to eventually dedicate an entire episode to the history of homosexuality in Korea. But it is important to note for, note for now that much like China, Korea's homosexual traditions were also significant influences on Japanese nanshoku. Much like in China, and perhaps modeled after them as well, Korea had a very rich courtly male-male homosexuality tradition. Eunuchs were commonly in the employ of Korean kings, much like they were by Chinese emperors, and Koreans established a unique institution of the Hwarang, or flower boys. There's flowers again. Mm -hmm. So, quote, 
These flower boys were aristocratic youths valued and chosen for their beauty, education, and not only chosen to be sexual partners of courtiers, but also served as warriors. They performed ritual dances and recited prayers for the welfare of the state. A Buddhist cleric from 1215 discusses in The Lives of Eminent Korean Monks how he founded a group of handsome youths who powdered their faces, wore ornamented dresses, and stressed their beauty and public service. He contrasts them with the boys who were the male favorites of Chinese rulers who were wont to cause scandals, and paints these Huarong as morally upright youth. The king's aim was to make the people progress toward goodness and justice and to lead them to the great way. Emperor Ai of the former Han loved only lust. Pan Ku therefore remarked, The tenderness which seduces man belongs not only to women, but to man as well. This indeed cannot be compared with our story of the Huarong. Such a burn. I know. <laughs> like, oh, man. God. Those Chinese emperors are just really horny. We love our refined flower boys who teach goodness. They are morally upright, and they're just so much better. Uh, our, gay, just, our gay boys are way better than your gay boys. Sorry. Beautiful shade. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are historical records that refer to pederastic relationships involving kings in many of these Korean dynasties, references to beautiful boys in puppet plays, and using the term longyang and nanse that we saw from the Chinese tradition which testifies to the major influence China had upon the Korean male-male tradition. And then how this moved over to Japan, where it may have become much more prominent. A Korean ambassador to Japan during the 1700s observed that among the aristocratic class, quote, there is no one who does not keep beautiful young men like flowers. I have never seen such a thing in other countries. Wow. So many flowers. Wow. So many pretty boys. Man, Japan. Yes. So, we talked about, in the very beginning, the Heian period, which had some mm -hmm. imperial courts. And this is actually where we find the earliest references to male-male sex in Japan. So, the few, like, itty-bitty-bit, uh, few literary references to same-sex love that do exist in ancient sources are relatively subtle and obscure. Those that do exist, however, become more numerous in this period, the Heian period. There are some references to princes having sex with Jido, or boy attendants, but at the time, the term could have just meant maidservants, so we can't treat these references as wholly reliable. Uh, you'll see this with a lot of early references, that things were just kind of not super clear, so it's kind of hard for scholars to say, yeah, yes, definitively, this is that. They didn't always, they didn't always specify gender the same way we might. Like, it was mm -hmm. the gender of the object of desire was less important than, like, the feelings the themselves. Feeling so they would often, like, the gender would be ambiguous. They would, they were more concerned with, like, ah, I am filled with longing and passion and desire for this thing rather than, like, the gender of the person that they were talking about. Right, yeah. And as one scholar notes, direct literary expressions of affection for friends of the same gender was conventional at the time. So right. there's that. We did, however, want to mention one story uh, that I in particular loved. So there's some some 
courtly fiction from the Heian period that heavily hints at homosexual relations. So there's the Genji Monogatari, or the Tale of Genji, which was written in early 11th century, and it makes reference to men frequently being moved by the beauty of young men. There's, you know, a, a frequent quote of like, if only he were a woman. And in one scene, the hero is rejected to by, by a woman, so he instead sleeps with her younger brother. Oops, wrong sibling. Whoopsie! And we have a lovely quote if you'd like to dramatically read it for us, Gretchen. Well, you at least must not abandon me. Genji pulled the boy down beside him. The boy was delighted, such were Genji's youthful charms. Genji, for his part, or so one is informed, found the boy more attractive than his chilly sister. I just really like that. Like, mm, she was a <laughs> bitch to me, so I'm gonna yep. screw you, bro. Oops. That really is one of my, that's one of my favorite tropes in fiction is, oops, wrong sibling, especially <laughs> if it's gay. Yes. So it's like, oops, I like your brother better. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, the best evidence for male-male relationships at court in the Heian period come from diaries, which make some allusions. The diaries of Fujiwara and Yorinaga make a few allusions to sexual encounters with various people, ranging from servants to aristocrats. Uh, just, you know, equal opportunity. Uh, in 1148, he writes, quote, Tonight I took Yoshimasa to bed and went really wild. It was especially satisfying. He had been ill for a while and resting, so tonight was the first time in a while. Buddy, let him sleep. If he's been sick, leave him alone. Chill out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, while there's some evidence for Heian period male-male sexual behavior at Imperial Court, it's really sparse when compared to the vast references to such in the Chinese court. So if male-male homosexuality wasn't as prevalent among the rulers, then where? So rather than an ancient imperial tradition like in China, male-male love in Japan actually emerged as a tradition that began in monastic communities and then expanded as a form of martial homosexuality. Hey, look, martial queerness isn't just for women. Shield-banging anyone? Yeah. Yes. So it, it emerged from, from this monastic tradition into a samurai tradition, which we briefly mentioned. But I just love that we've got like this nice combination. And it also harkens back to us talking about queer monks and nuns, which is great. Yeah. This ties up so many things that we've talked about. It's, yeah. It's pretty cool when that happens. Yeah. So speaking of the monastic tradition, Nanshoku as a term and concept, as we said, was imported into Japan by Buddhist monks who had studied in China. The connection between monks and Nanshoku is reflected in the folkloric explanation of the origin of homosexuality in Japan, which is considered the innovation of one man, Kukai, or Kobodaishi, who lived from 778 to 835 CE. Kukai was the founder of the Shingon Buddhist sect in Japan, and a significant religious figure. And legend had it that he introduced Nanshoku into Japan after returning from China in 806. There is apparently a text that contains Kukai's secret teachings. And in the Tokugawa period, the legend of Kukai's association with Nanshoku was so prevalent that playwright Chikamatsu Monzaemon introduced an act of his play with this. On Koya the mountain, where women are hated, why does the maiden pine grow? Yet even if the maiden pines were all rooted out, would not the stars of love still shoot through the night? And later, he goes on to elaborate that the absence of women in the monastic community doesn't mean abstinence, adding, More fitting than pine, the plum or willow is the minion cherry. The temple page, for his is the way of Monju the minion, spread by the great teacher, Kukai, the love of fair youths respected even by the laity. 
This is the home of the secrets of pederasty. So beautiful. Yes. I like that. Why does the maiden pine grow? <laughs> why do, what is it? Why does the, what is the cage bird saying? Why does the maiden yeah. pine grow? <laughs> or the like, Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How yes. Does the grow? There you go. <laughs> so yeah, there's, there's actually very little evidence for anti-homosexual tendencies in Japanese Buddhist or Shinto traditions. Uh, what a nice change from, other religions Yay. we have seen. So while there were some significant religious texts, like the Ojo Yoshu, uh, which is teachings essential for rebirth from 985 by the Tendai priest Genshin, uh, which drew upon Sanskrit and Chinese scriptures that alluded to male-male sex as sinful, there's ambiguity once again in the translations and how quote-unquote heinous of an offense homosexuality was considered to be. As Gary Loop notes, it seems probable that the Kukai Mount Koya legend was developed by monks or laymen long after the holy man's death, simply to legitimize Nanshoku in the face of earlier Buddhist condemnation. So, you know, a lot of it was coming from, like, kind of continental Buddhism. Japan's distance from other centers of Buddhist culture and the Japanese court's decision to stop regular contact with China in the 9th century may have been what allowed Japanese Buddhism to blossom with Nanshoku and reduce the influence of texts that condemned this kind of behavior. So the emergence of Buddhism in Japan, like Zen Buddhism, is very unique as when compared to other traditions of Buddhism throughout the world. In the Tokugawa or Edo period, which is, you know, main topic of conversation, commentators freely illustrated kami, the ancient spirits in Shinto tradition, engaging in anal sex with each other. And many of these spirits eventually came to be specifically seen as guardians of Nanshoku love, including Hachiman, Miyoshin, Shinmei, and Tenjin. In fact, Tokugawa writer Ihara Saikaku, who you will hear show up again and again, he joked that since there were no women in the first three generations of the gods found in the Nihon Shoki, the gods must have been enjoying Nanshoku with each other. And he even argued that this was in fact the origin of Nanshoku love that came to be practiced among human beings. <laughs> and I just wanted to include a caption for an image uh, from this one particular illustration. I tried to Google it to see if I could find a version that we could put on the website. So uh, stay tuned to see whether or not it will be up there. But we've got it in one of our books. Um, and it has these kami having sex. And, and the caption is just, the god of healing buggers the god of thunder, perhaps to punish him for bringing famine and floods. <laughs> I just really like the phrase, like, just buggers the god of thunder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> so, Nanshoku relationships, unsurprisingly, were pederastic. The older partner, or ninja, would typically be a, not ninja, ninja, just ninja. so you know. Yes. Though it would be really cool if they were also ninjas. Um, <laughs> sorry. So, the older partner, the ninja, would typically be a monk or abbot, with the younger partner being an acolyte, was a pre-adolescent or teenage boy called a chigo. Ninja often wrote official vows of fidelity, and both parties were encouraged to take the relationship very seriously and treat it with honor until the young boy either reached adulthood or left the monastery. The Chigo, in addition to performing domestic chores, commonly shared the bed with their ninja. And this is, this is a really cool description from Dharmachari Janivara, one of our sources, about you know what this relationship looked like. So, in Japan at this time, that an older man should fall in love with a younger was understood to be due to a positive karmic bond between the two. 
The key concept here is nasake, or sympathy, an important term in Japanese ethics as well as aesthetics. A youth who recognizes the sincerity of an older man's feelings and who, out of sympathy, responds to him irrespective of the man's status or of any benefit he might expect to gain from the liaison is considered exemplary. So there was this really spiritual and spiritualized aspect to the Nenja Chigo relationship in the monastic tradition. In Buddhist spirituality, this had the effect of teaching the young Chigo about the temporality of love and the unavoidable fading of beauty, which would then aid him in his path toward enlightenment. Thus, while Nanshoku was treated with some ambivalence in early texts, many of the Buddhist clergy had few qualms indulging despite their vows of chastity. In one of Saikaku's tales, the monk Gengobei says, When I abandoned the world for the religious life, I vowed to Buddha that I would give up all thought of sex with women. However, I couldn't stop thinking about the beautiful way or about boys. From that time on, I've apologized to the Buddhas, saying, Permit me, please, this single pleasure. So up to now, no one has condemned me. <laughs> I've gotten away with it for this long. So, <laughs> I mean, I said I'd give up love for women, but I didn't say anything about boys. Yeah, the the quote beautiful way is essentially serving as a like forgivable compromise between abstinence and heterosexuality. Loopholes. Yay. Yeah. So like European Christianity sees indulgences as the most, you know, sexual indulgences as the most punishable of sins. And in Japan it's kind of like meh. Like it'd be great if, you know, your discipline was a little bit better. Here's a slap on the wrist, I guess. Right. And, I mean, you said you wouldn't be straight, but like you, this is you fine. You got us there. There you go. Yep. You you found that loophole. Good yeah. job, guys. Yeah. Enjoy yourself. I mean, it doesn't also, it doesn't, you know, hurt slash help uh, that by the medieval period, Japanese Buddhism insisted upon women, women being evil and defilers of nature. Yeah. yeah. Fun. Ugh. Misogyny. So, yeah. So, so, the negative views of women tended to discourage monks from seeking sexual contact with them. And in monasteries, sex with Chico was regarded as a tolerable kind of outlet for monks' feelings. Ew, ladies are gross. Boys are cool, though. Yeah. Uh, so the ninja, the ninja Chigo relationship was so prevalent in this period, it appears often in literature, like love poems from the 10th century onward addressed from monks to acolytes, and stories of abbots who fall in love with their young acolytes or no performers. That's N O H. Uh, which was an early form of puppet theater. And then from the 10th century on, there are allusions and clear references to male-male sex in the monasteries that proliferate. Uh, <laughs> this is the best story. So one of the one of the pieces of writing that we see is a religious vow from 1237, which was registered by a monk named Shaman uh, Suse at the Todaji Temple in Nara. He was 36 at the time of writing this, and this shows how widespread homosexual behavior was in these monasteries. So listen to this stud. Five vows. Item. I will remain secluded at Kasaki Temple until reaching age 41. Item. Having already fucked 95 males, I will not behave wantonly with more than 100. Item. I will not keep and cherish any boys except for Ryumaru. Item. I will not keep older boys in my own bedroom. Item. Among the older and middle boys, I will not keep and cherish any as their ninja. 95! <laughs> I love this dude. <laughs> He's like... Yep. 
well, I've fucked 95 dudes, but you've got to have a limit somewhere. Right? 101 is just excessive. Yeah, 100, fine. But 101 is like, yeah, no, that's too many. Too many. He's collecting boys like Dalmatians. <laughs> <laughs> It's the only let's say that's the only association I can really have with that number. Right. My my favorite part is that later in the document, he specifically makes sure to end it with a disclaimer, saying that these vows only apply to the present lifetime and that future reincarnations are totes cool to do whatever he wants. Ah. Oh man. Nothing like a fresh slate, am I right? <laughs> Right? Like, I've got my limits. My limit is 100. But, like, if a future reincarnation of me, like, he can do whatever he wants. But, like, I my, I set my bar. My limit is 100. Yeah. Guys, that's... Oh, my God. Sorry. It's so great. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So, in Japan, unlike in ancient Greece, where anal sex was considered feminizing and therefore derogatory to the passive partner, and sex between free men was an abomination... Uh, which we've kind of touched on in various places, and we will eventually do a an episode on Greece. The sexual pleasure of receiving partner was celebrated. One story from the Chigo no Soshi depicts a boy being dismayed that his priest, having drunk too much, is not able to get erect and can't penetrate him. And thus, each night, he enlists the help of a servant named Chuta to prepare him by penetrating him with a dildo and warm his bottom. When then called to the priest's bed... Thus, without any delay, the old priest would insert his penis into the bottom of this boy who had prepared so well in advance. Such a sincerely devoted acolyte is without parallel. One must regard him as a priceless human being. Yeah, the problem is, this whole process would then in turn cause Chuta to become aroused. And of course, hijinks ensues, as we often see in these kinds of stories. So this, yes. this sincerely devoted acolyte is not wholly faithful to his priest, and he takes up the opportunity to get some with one of his peers. So there's this one painting that accompanies the text, showing Chuta preparing the boy. The captions read, "I Do you want to be uh, the boy and I'll be Chuta? Sure. We'll treat this like a little radio play. Okay. <laughs> so, Chuta. This is hard to endure. You don't go to the priest until later, just before he retires. Do you really need me to perform this service for you already while it's still afternoon? You're much too early. Anyway, stick your finger in. Since I perform this service every night, I sometimes think, enough already. I've already told you this confidentially. It's too much. You can't understand my feelings. You're insensitive. This time, I'd like real satisfaction. Well... How about sticking the dildo in one soon? I guess it can't be helped, can it? My thing gets erect, and there's nothing to do but masturbate. So my penis gets weak, and my wife reviles me. I'll endure it, though, and help you out. This smells good. Excuse me for talking to you this way, master, but isn't your bottom hard to please? You're very fond of your bottom, aren't you? Before you go to the honorable priest, I wonder if you'd let me stick my penis in. <laughs> and then the next wow. <laughs> the next illustration shows Chuta applying lubricant to the boy, and the boy's caption reads, Smear on that clove oil, then screw me with your full five sun. Yeah, yeah five, five sun, sun is like six inches. Six inches. So, All right. There you go. So, you know, he's having a good time. Uh, yeah, just, just, just monks. Being monks with the, with their acolytes, normal normal monk and acolyte things in Tokugawa, <laughs> Japan. So this leads us to the samurai tradition. 
So because many samurai were trained on the basis of Buddhist principles, sometimes even in the monasteries themselves, Nanshoku spread from religious circles to the samurai class, where it was customary for an adolescent boy to be trading with an older man who was experienced in martial arts. As with monastic traditions, it typically had the older male or ninja, the one who loves, and the younger man or chigo, referred to as the one who is loved. And again, as with monastic traditions, these brotherhood contracts were considered exclusive, with both partners swearing to take no other male lovers until the younger male reached adulthood and the contract was dissolved. This eventually became codified into a formal system of age-structured homosexuality, referred to as Shudo, the way of the Wakashu, or the way of adolescent boys. The older partner would teach the younger martial skills, warrior etiquette, and the samurai code of honor. The younger partner would in turn inspire the older partner to live up to his ideals, thereby having a mutually ennobling effect on each other. Each partner was expected to be loyal unto death and assist the other in vendettas, acts of honor, and other feudal duties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one samurai treatise of the Tokugawa period described Nanshoku as, quote, something both agreeable and disagreeable in the feudal system of Edo-era Japan. Because interestingly enough, it pitted the self-sacrificing loyalty to one's lover, as Gretchen just mentioned, against the duty of having a life to give in service to one's daimyo, or lord. As Loop says, quote, an unconditional commitment to a man other than one's lord made one less serviceable to the latter. Quick aside, the relationship between lord and vassal in itself was also incredibly homoerotic. Uh, loyalty to one's lord overrode loyalty to your family, wife and children, and even obligations to parents, which is probably the biggest modification to the, that the Japanese made to Confucianism. Feudal loyalty trumped the ever-important filial piety like we saw in China. Some men's feelings for their lords, quote, would have ranged from mere willingness from mere willingness to follow orders and obediently fight on their behalf, so-called cold duty, to a genuinely passionate devotion, warm duty. Lords receiving the latter would be expected to reciprocate with affectionate attentiveness to their vassals' well-being. Hmm. I really like this one famous tale that shows these kind of eroticized relationships between the lord and vassal. It's a story in uh, Tushingura, which is the treasury of loyal retainers, in which a lord is com- forced to commit seppuku, which is like a ritual suicide, um, mm-hmm. for attacking an official in the shogunal palace, uh, shogunal palace, but hesitates to do so until the arrival of his chief retainer, Yuronosuke. It reads like a scene from Romeo and Juliet. When Yurunosuke hasn't arrived and the Lord expresses dismay that he won't get to see him before he dies, he plunges the dagger into his body just as the warrior rushes into the room. Yurunosuke claims the dying Lord. I waited for you as long as I could. The two men then express their joy at being able to look upon the other's faces one last time and in their farewells psychically agree that Yurunosuke will, with the daimyo's own dagger, wreak vengeance on this foe. So sociologist Nakane Chie talks about how much this bears resemblance to a love affair, and that in Japan, there's actually no love story comparable in popularity to the Chushingura, at least at this time. Uh, The men in these relationships would have had their emotions completely filled up with devotion to their master. They would have had little time for a wife or a sweetheart, which I thought was a nice little fun aside. It's just like Romeo and Juliet, just like, no! It's just my lord. Just, it's my lord, my lord. Just, just my lord, my lord. So, back to the Wakashudo and samurai relationships. 
So sex between a ninja and a chica would have been expected until the young boy came of age, but it was also expected that the bond would then become a lifelong friendship between the two. Sex with women wasn't barred for either party during the period of their contract. Only other male sexual partners were forbidden. And once the Chigo came of age, both he and his ninja would then have been free to seek other Wakashu lovers. The roles of ninja and Chigo also came to represent sexual roles in kind of the more... The dynamic we've seen elsewhere with the active and passive. As you can expect, the older ninja came to be seen as the active partner with the... Passive or receptive Chigo being the one who was penetrated. It was not typically permitted for a ninja to take on the passive role. And even with nunchoku relationships between boys of similar ages, one would have been classified as the ninja and the other as the wakashu, with the roles not really being swapped. Sorry, switches. Um, <laughs> you, you get one role, and that's what you're at. Until not really you get old enough. Not really much, uh, <laughs> much of a verse being a thing and medieval Japan. Right. Nope. <laughs> but eventually, this is what I think is fascinating. This kind of man-boy paradigm came to be more fictive than real. So long as the partners engaged in sexual activity within the paradigm of active and passive role and respected feudal class and status hierarchy, age didn't really matter. For example, in the tale Two Old Cherry Trees, the lovers who have been in love since their youth the man is 66 and the boy is 63. Like, it's just one of them always does the penetrating and the other one is always receptive, but they're like three years apart. But one is a man and the other one's a boy. It's just top and bottom. Yeah, basically, it's top and bottom. Yeah, that's great. Pretty much. And we actually see this a lot in kind of the next phase of Mm -hmm. Nanshoku that we see, which is where we enter, like, Tokugawa Japan, really proper, and the rise of capitalism. So with the pacification of Japan, as we mentioned, male-male love in Japan actually moved on from the samurai class. With pacification came urbanization and the move to the cities. You had all of those castle towns. And so at first, the garrisoning of samurai within the cities brought the samurai tradition of nanshoku into a place of greater visibility. And building on the history of the monks and the samurai, we actually get a third, somewhat unique bourgeoisie nanshoku tradition emerging that kind of changed the game. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned earlier, the coming of the warrior class to towns also brought with it the rise of merchants and the middle class. Since the samurai were of the highest social class and were perceived of as being like the moral exemplars for the rest of the population, you can guess where that led... The middle class and merchants are trying out nunchoku relationship patterns that imitated what they saw with the samurai. Like, oh, hey, the rich people are doing this. Let's do that, too, because we want to be like the, we want to be like the high class folks. Mm-hmm. Isn't it cool when like it's like I mean, this is a pattern we see in often in society where the middle classes are like, let's be like the aristocrats. It's just in this situation, they're like. Let's have queer relationships, just like they do. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. (laughs) It's like, cool. So rather than being a sign of like aristocratic degeneration, which is often what you see in Western societies, nanshoku relationships among the samurai were like, oh, we should be like them. We should do that too. You see this show up in 
many different things. You see that as the merchant class rose and many of this aristocratic elite, these samurai kind of fell into poverty, literature and art catered more to the urban class than the elite warriors. And so Nanshoku entered this commercial world. You Mm -hmm. saw it in a lot of the media of the time. Yep. Also, fewer men became apprentices to samurai, so it was more likely that those seeking to have a nanshoku relationship sought it out in the form of relationships with male sex workers, stylized to reproduce that what was seen in the samurai class with ninja and chigo. So the popularity of such relationships between merchants and sex workers gradually led to associating nanshoku relationships with commercialized sex and gratification, rather than the more romanticized and exclusive relationships among the monks and samurai that came with everlasting devotion and brotherhood bonds. So we also saw this uh, this pattern in China, too, in China. Mm-hmm. where it really, the, the realm of male-male sexuality became something that was entirely among the rise of capitalism and the sphere of commercialized sex. Right. So with that commercialization of Nenshoku, as that accelerated in Tokugawa, Japan, um, which, I mean, it wasn't exclusive to nunchuck relationships. This was also happening among heterosexual pleasure and sex work. Prostitution became closely associated with kabuki drama. So it's important to note that while the creator of kabuki was a woman, we want to recognize her, Izumo no Okuni, badass. She's pretty awesome. Yeah. In the mid-17th century, women kabuki actors were banned on the grounds of being too erotic. And... Thereafter, like Shakespeare, all parts were played by men. Mm-hmm. So male sex workers, uh, who were called kagema, were often apprenticed as kabuki actors and catered to clients of all genders during the 19th century. Many were indentured servants that were then sold to a brothel or a theater under contract for 10 years. Such young men would act on stage and work as sex workers off the stage and were quite popular among, like I said, all genders. Mm -hmm. They were kind of the actors and pop stars of their era, and some even had, like, official fan clubs. Mm Mm-hmm. People would even, like, make posters of their favorite uh, Kagema and distribute them. Mm-hmm. Like, they were, it was truly the right. wictive of, of feudal Japan if, if instead of, like, pop stars, they were sex workers. Sex workers, yeah. It's great. And kabuki actors. Yeah, which yeah. is awesome. Like, many, many wealthy patrons of the merchant class and wealthy elite, like, attempted to curry favor. And, like, that's where a lot of these laws came from. Like, the reason women were banned was because there were, like, fights breaking out mm-hmm. over, like, fighting over, like, women actors. So, like, yeah, I gotta ban the ladies. And eventually, you have laws being enforced because the the wealthy patrons were, like, literally fighting each other for the favors of the kagema that like mm-hmm. eventually the government's like oh this is a problem this is causing like unrest and people are fighting and maybe we should not be doing this because um we don't right. want people fighting over like fighting over who the who the kagema likes best right like, i know and i love that they just they banned the ladies but they're like all right well fine we're just gonna go full tilt for the boys and they'll be like wait no they're too sexy too oh no damn it there was like this one aristocrat that just literally sold everything he had to try to curry favor with one of the kagema and it's just like that's that's a fandom mood if, right? Like, if I ever saw it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I, I know some fandoms right now for particular actors of various genders that would, I believe that this would be true of if it yeah. were possible in our society to do it. Absolutely. So, Onagata 
which is female role, and wakashukata, or adolescent boy role, actors were particularly popular. So this would be male actors who either played a female char- female roles on stage or played young boy roles on stage. Mm-hmm. And were even featured in Nanchoku Prince of the Era, and some were like bestsellers. Mm-hmm. So male and female roles for kabuki actors were pretty strictly enforced. One actor could only play either a male or female role in any given season. And originally, young male sex workers and actors were restricted to the wakashu category because adult males weren't considered to be desirable sexual partners for other adult men. This, (laughs) I just, I love everything about this. This is so great. So this led to the sex workers or their employers like intentionally concealing the age of the kagema like well into their 20s and 30s if they could like they mm-hmm. would just pretend like no no this is this is a 16 year old yes yes he's <laughs> just perpetually 16 years old still no older same this age. is so topical with that like it's like the kid that was that was abandoned but it turns out she's like a 30 something ukrainian yeah. woman yes <laughs> it's like uh no i'm totally a child ah. I'm I'm still a child. What are you talking about? I'm not older. So this led to the development of an alternate shooter relationship where the quote unquote boy partner could actually be older than the ninja partner. What mattered, again, as we saw with the samurai class, was the role, not necessarily how old they were. Changes in the depiction of Wakashu roles in kabuki plays de-emphasized the Wakashu's long forelock. So in Japanese society at the time, hairstyles were representative of age. So young boys would have these long forelocks. It was what defined them as young boys. So like the Wakashu role in kabuki plays, like they just stopped having long forelocks for the young boy roles to downplay there. Um, so this was done. This is another one of those weird laws. The actors playing the Wakashu role were so popular that eventually they were like, okay, so we got to just, they're not allowed to have forelocks. We cannot present them in the stereotypical young boy fashion. We got to unsexy them by cutting yes, their hair. Yes, they're too sexy. We got to cut their hair. They're too sexy. Um, to prevent like the sometimes violent competition for the favors of the, the Kagema actors. So, but this only serves to emphasize that like role was more important than age in these relationships. So long as the boy partner looked suitably youthful. So, as mentioned in the Nanshoku Okagami, quote, it used to be that no matter how splendid the boy, it was impossible for him to keep his forelocks and take on patrons after the age of 20. But after 1654, since everyone wore the hairstyle of adult men, it was still possible at 34 or 35 for young-looking actors to get under a man's robe. How strange are the ways of love? Like, I just attractiveness. love the phrasing of that. Right? How strange are the ways of love? Um, so eventually, like, attractiveness was intertwined with the perception of age rather than how old you actually were. It was like, if you look young enough, they'll think you're pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And while non-shoku relationships typically differed in age and social rank, we do have some egalitarian homosexual relationships that existed. They were more rare, but there are some relationships that developed between boys or adolescents and would continue into adulthood. In such relationships, the formal attainment of adulthood meant little. So both of the people may have gone through genpuku, which is the formal ceremony where the boys' forelocks would have been cut. And that's like 
congratulations, uh, you're a man now. Or they might have both kept their forelocks. If only one had gone through Genpuku, then he would have just been considered the elder or active partner. So like we were saying with the samurai, it's kind of like, well, the age doesn't actually matter as long as one person is being one role and one is being the other. As long as you got a top and a bottom, doesn't matter how old they are. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So like, as long as people were equal status, like equal class status, a small age difference could still take the form of a brotherhood bond. So somebody would be the older brother, someone would be the younger brother. Top, bottom. Woo! <laughs> uh, in Joshua S. Mosto's article, The Gender of Wakashu and the Grammar of Desire, he does a really deep dive into a text called The Wood Incense Pillow of Young Man Play, which was published in 1675. This was designed for followers of Shudo with multiple depictions of erotic acts between older men, female prostitutes, and Kagema in female actor and Wakashu actor roles. Masto goes so far as to postulate that Wakashu should actually be understood as its own separate gender, as both men and women competed for the attention of Wakashu. He suggests that in Tokugawa, Japan, we must think of at least four genders, men or otoko, wives or ona, prostitutes, Joro, and young men, the Wakashu. Yeah, and interestingly enough, we didn't, um, we haven't gone super far into Onagata, but the Kagema who were performing these female roles in the Kabuki theater, actually, it wasn't just like, oh, hey, it's drag, I'm gonna put it on while I'm on stage. It was, it became Mm -hmm. a lifestyle, and there are a lot of articles actually talking about how this may have altered gender roles and gender identities for these individuals. They were even, I mean, they were trained to behave and talk and act and walk like women in in a feminized way, and were even trained to, like, urinate as women um and so that's something that we can we can get into a little bit more mm-hmm. later because i think i think that's worthy of kind of its own episode or absolutely um, you know something where we where we specifically look at gender roles right. in in japan but i wanted to mention that especially because the onagata are really fascinating yeah from what we've read in other spots there's some really interesting things mm-hmm. to dive into here so once again just to point out that like gender in this context Kind of like we saw in Egypt, like gender has more to do with like one's role in mm-hmm. society, everything to do with, with role and performance in society rather than anatomy. Yep. And that's just one thing to like continually point out when we're engaging in other cultures is that their definition of gender doesn't necessarily line up with the way we in 20th and 21st century like have for the last 100 years or so defined gender in terms of biology and anatomy. But gender here has pretty much nothing to do with that and is everything to do with your performance, the role that you have in society. So it's almost as if that's kind of just what it is. It's almost like that's what gender is, guys. Woo! Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So eventually the popularity of these kagema within the Edo period led to a crackdown on male sex work specifically and male-male love more generally in Japan. With the Meiji era, which is 1868 to 1921, so this is what kind of what we consider modern Japan. It's, you know, you have Mm -hmm. like pre-war Japan and post-war Japan. With this came increased pressures on sex work and the importation of Western ideas about homosexuality. Gosh, what a surprise that with that came the rejection of male-male love. Huh. Gee, Lee, I think we have a jingle for this. Hmm. 
fuck, fuck, colonialism. I just, I love, I love that jingle so much. Can't do a single episode without talking about how shitty colonialism is. Woo! Yep. God, I, I really love do doing need- a history podcast. <laughs> yep. I really do need to, oh, I keep forgetting to download that onto my phone and make it. I want to make, probably not my ringtone, but maybe like my text tone. Like I want to add something, some kind of alert on my phone that just every now and again just tells me fuck colonialism because yes i should be reminded fuck colonialism every day of my life that should be a problem considering how much i double text you (laughs) it could just be i know i'm getting a text from me fuck 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 fuck, fuck, colonialism (laughs) it just like never stops it's just (laughs) it's just fuck 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 (laughs) let's just hope it doesn't go off when i'm around either any of my nibblings yeah (laughs) all right uh, so we wanted to kind of shift the conversation specifically to specific people examples and more fun literary examples, because we mentioned there's a whole lot that we know about all of this from fun diaries and poems and wonderful literary works. So Nanchoku love was the topic for many literary works in the Tokugawa period. But because white people hate to expand their minds by reading literary works from other places, a lot of it hasn't been translated into English. So, sorry, guys, you won't be able to find most of this, except if you're reading scholarly articles that are already translated for you. Just bullshit. There are English translations for Ihara Saikoku's The Life of an Amorous Man, which has a main character who has sexual relationships with both men and women. So, somewhere on the multi-gender attracted spectrum, probably. Uh, Jipen Shaiku's post-publication preface of Shanks Mare, which features a male-male relationship, and Ueda Akinari's Tales of Moonlight and Rain, which features a monk who engages in Nanshoku relationships. But there are other works that we know of from the sources that we've read. Denbu Monogatari, Story of a Boar, in which men debate whether Wakashudo love or the love of a woman is better while they're taking a bath. <laughs> Yeah, while they're bathing in a river. Very Xena. Yep, very Xena. <laughs> Iwatsutsuji, or Wild Azaleas, by Kitamura Kigin, was published in 1713, but written in 1676, is an illustrated anthology of male homoerotic poetry and prose. It was one of the most readily available books of its kind, even in modern-day Japan. According to the epilogue, the friend of the man who had come to possess the manuscript is quoted as saying, This is a remarkable book. Clearly not the work of an ordinary man, and it contains much rare material. Indeed, anyone with an interest in male love will find it well worth reading. It's like a perfect, like, back jacket quote. Yeah. Right? Yes, exactly. It's, it's like one of those, like, New York, New York Times, Times reviews. reviews. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so, so great. Um, I love this part, though. The man who has the book published argues that were he not to publish it, he would be no better than a shomon, which is a Buddhist believer who only practiced his faith for the sake of his own enlightenment instead of helping others to achieve enlightenment. So he's basically like, dude, look, it is my I duty. Would- yes, it is my sworn duty to give you this book of homoerotic prose and poetry, guys. Like, I would be a bad Buddhist if I didn't give this to you. Thank you. Hit me like, with that you're good welcome. gay shit. Yes. So the title comes from the first poem of the book, which is Memories of Love Revive Like Wild Azaleas Bursting Into Bloom on Mountains of Evergreen. My stony silence only shows how much I love you. Aww. Aww. 
So the work includes 34 homoerotic love poems and prose passages from 16 different works of classical literature. The literature depicts men in the past, typically monks and priests with their chigo, with the goal of providing a model of behavior for male-male love in his day, as there was no literary tradition of male-male love like there was in Chinese tradition. So this is kind of what we said at the beginning. Japan didn't have a long literary tradition of male-male homosexuality to draw on, so you have works like these that tried to kind of collect what it is that they had to present a literary tradition to make up for Mm -hmm. the lack of one. Yeah. And with the rise of wakashudo practices amongst kabuki actors and male sex workers, the need for a spiritualized account of more elitist male-male love became necessary. So, according to the writers of such works as Iwatsusuji, in order to distinguish it from what they believed were lower and more eroticized rather than spiritual practices of male love, male-male love. So, you get the commercialization of nanshoku, and then you've got, like, hoity-toity snobby people being like, Mm, but what happened to my fancy gay sex? <laughs> <laughs> right? What happened to my, this is just for the rich people. All of the peons, yeah. all of the plebs have taken it over. Uh, so the book served as a reminder to monks and samurai of more traditional forms of male-male love, since they themselves were drawn to kabuki actors and kagemi. Yeah, they're like, no, 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 don't do the thing that the plebs are doing. We have our own stuff. Do the Do the fancy gay love, not that stuff. Oh, no. Don't be a basic bitch. Yes. Yes. That's ba- yeah. Don't <laughs> be basically, basic. Yeah. <laughs> so Iwatsutsuji contributed to the overall process of historicizing male love by defining a literary passport from one of our sources, which like, it's so fascinating that like, they had such a drive to have a literary tradition to begin with. Like that in and of itself mm-hmm. is fascinating to me as like, that's what in a sense legitimizes it is, mm-hmm. look, we've got this this literary history. The people in the books do it. Therefore, it's good and you should do it too. And it's just such a foreign concept to Western society, not just because it's a foreign culture, but just the idea that like, right, those of us who live in the United States, when you hear like, no, they wanted to establish a literary tradition to prove that this was a good thing and people should do it. We're like, what? Yeah. But the Bible says it's bad. Oftentimes you have to convince people that because something existed in literature of the period, it was happening. Right. And not like, oh, hey, look, we've got all of these books that talk about it. Yeah. It's good. Mm-hmm. So in classical love poetry, no, like we, like I mentioned earlier, there, there wasn't really any significance attached to the gender of the object of love. According to Shallow, the emotions of longing, yearning, and lusting were apparently looked at as identical regardless of the sex of the object of those feelings. But you have this need for a literary tradition upon which to hang male-male love. So the differentiation between the object of desire came to to the forefront with the compilation of works of love poetry. So, you know, in the past where they didn't really attach much attention to the gender of the object of love, the more they felt their society felt the need for this literary tradition, the more they would emphasize, no, I'm talking about boys. No, we let like, this is about a man loving a boy. (laughs) Just so you know, this is the gay. (laughs) That's like the, the Tumblr posts that are like, me writing my diaries so that a historian can't yes. say, oh, there was ambiguity. It's like, I'm talking about a woman. I am gay. I am a homosexual. I'm talking about homosexual ladies, ladies loving ladies. I'm a, I'm a homo. I'm gay. Yep. <laughs> this is gay. So we've got some poems, some more poems, and maybe we could, you know, go back and forth if you want to read one and then I'll read one. Sure. Uh, so we'll start with the first one. 
Of the many people I saw at the holy purification ceremony, you alone, my boy, stirred my heart. If you had been the moon slowly crossing the great sky over our lover's rendezvous, I might have seen your reflection in my tear-soaked sleeves. Oh, tear-soaked sleeves. Was this the boy of my dreams, or was he real? I cannot tell. Whichever it may be, he has captured my heart and led me into confusion. How long to tell you of this heart that wanders, floating like a cloud, through which I glimpsed the lovely blossom of your face. Again, so much flower imagery. I love it. Yeah. It's so pretty. It really is. It seems like so much, like so many, so many ladies get martial imagery and so many boys get flowers. Hey, uh, how's that for a reversal of gender roles yay. right there? The oh. boys are over there like exchanging flowers and ladies like, yeah, bang the shields. Lances, yeah. Lances, yeah. Thigh fencing, whoa. It's great. <laughs> we also see, much like in the Ming and Qing dynasties of China, uh, the, the Tokugawa satirists were popular and humor was a common factor in many pieces of literature and art that depicted Nanshoku. Much of it, again, scatological or focused on the anus, uh, as you heard before. Anal sex was by far the preferred act in Japan, with very, very little references to oral or intercural, so that's between the thighs, like we've seen in, in some other times. Uh, so, harken back to what we said about chrysanthemum references, there's also expressions like katsumatsu, or anus marriage, or kongu, the term for a daimyo's partner, which meant golden buttocks. So, a lot of focus on the butt. Tokugawa, this, this was ridiculous. Tokugawa yep. humorists frequently exploited a common term for kagema, which was okama, meaning pot or bathtub. One satirist, Ishikawa Machimochi, compares a boy to prostitute who refuses to have sex with him because of hemorrhoids. Like, leave him alone. Right? Uh, he compares him to a bathhouse closed for repairs. <laughs> Quote, it's just like the sign over the bathhouse entrance. Because of damage to the kama, we're closed today. You just return home carrying your towel. For the time being, there's nothing you can do about it. When a kama is damaged, whether it's the bathtub or the kagema, it's a bother. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Uh... In a work called Nanshoku Okugami, which we had mentioned before, a boy muses that, like the firefly, he makes a living with his butt. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, again, like, not a lot of reservations about being nope. very explicit with very um, corporeal humor. Yep. Famous visual artists of the period, like Hokusai and Hiroshige, prided themselves on depicting Nanshoku loves in their prints, both with erotic and non-erotic overtones. And erotic Shungo woodblocks were extremely popular, and you can find prints of them, and some of them are extremely erotic. Real great. Real, Real graphic. <laughs> yeah. Real, yep, where you can see just how much they love that, the golden buttocks. Um, <laughs> it's quite vivid. Yeah. So one thing we can note from these works is that Nanshoku was not considered incompatible with men having relationships with women. Books of erotic prints often feature men with attractive young women, young men, and or the onagata. So several works seem to suggest that the ideal was to have both joro, which was, you know, young female sex workers, and wakashu lovers. I mean, this makes me think of our episode on pirates where they're like, oh, no, they're having too much gay sex. Send the ladies and they're like, how about both? 
let's just have some threesomes. And at the same time, women were also considered to be very attracted to both Wakashu and Onagata. And it was assumed that young men who had these roles would reciprocate that desire with women as well. So it seems like the ideal for adult males in Japanese society was some kind of, you know, in modern terms, something like bisexuality or pansexuality, somewhere on the multigender attracted spectrum. Mm-hmm. It wasn't limited to that, but like it was so common to be like, oh, yeah, you can have your nanshoku, you can have your ladies, you can just have whatever you want. Why not? Yeah. And often it had to do with the age structured nature of Wakashudo, too. You had a yeah. lot of times when you know, the person who was having the chi- the chigo or the wakashu role as the boy, once they kind of aged out of that, they would go off and they would either or both find their own chigo or go find a wife. Right. Yep. Exactly. So we saw that same kind of dynamic in China as well. Yes. A much more fluid understanding of at least adult male sexuality. Mm-hmm. Ihara Saikaku's The Great Mirror of Male Love is considered to be the definitive work on the subject from the period and was meant to be a reflection of all the ways that men in Tokugawa-era Japan loved other men. He frequently writes about the shojinzuki, the quote-unquote connoisseur of boys, who engage sexually and or romantically with young boys often, but not exclusively. He also wrote about adult and young males who were exclusively interested in men that might be referred to as onagirai, or woman haters, though this could also just refer to men who just didn't like women in all social contexts, whether or not there was a sexual preference involved, and someone could prefer male-male love and not be called a woman hater. Men who fell into this category weren't stigmatized. So Gary Loop, in his book Male Colors, writes about Saikaku's work thusly. In this brilliant, refined, and tolerant milieu, we have, not surprisingly, evidence of a self-conscious subculture. Though the great mirror occasionally portrays bisexual behavior, it is noteworthy that Saikaku more often depicts devotees of male love as a class who think of themselves as exclusive in their preferences, stress this exclusiveness by calling themselves woman-haters the term onagirai, and forming a unique community, a male love sect. No other early society shows this phenomenon quite so clearly as 17th century Japan. Although it interestingly enough reminds me of the mirror polishing gang in China. Yeah. Mirrors, man. Mirrors is a thing. It's good. Uh, So in Paul Gordon Shallow's introduction to Saikoku's work, he writes... Quote, interestingly, Saikoku structured Nanshoku Okagami not around the bisexual ethos of the Shojinzuki, but around the exclusively homosexual ethos of the Onagarai. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. tales in Saikoku's work, The Sword That Survived Love's Flame, which is a great title, right? begins with a poem about being a woman hater. Memories of a rice husker, a woman hater unto death, saving his birthplace from disaster. The same story features two characters who refer to themselves as women haters and extol the virtues of the love of beautiful young men, which is, quote, the only thing of interest in this world. (laughs) (laughs) From these tales, we can see that those who fulfilled the Wakashu role in a relationship could prefer the company of men, women, or both. An actor in the tale Wine Cup Overflowing, for example, rejected the many love letters he received from women and devoted himself exclusively to the path of male love. So another Edo period writer 
Ejima Kiseka writes of a character in his 1715 work, The Characters of Worldly Young Men, who, quote, never cared for women. All his life, he remained unmarried in the grip of intense passions for one handsome boy after another. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, we there is evidence that there were Wakashu who engaged in these relationships out of duty rather than love or attraction, but it does seem very strongly that there's, like, clearly a romantic or sexual preference mm-hmm. involved in, especially with, like, the Wakashu... Kagema, who continued to fulfill like that role. into adulthood, yeah. Right. Exactly. And finally, because we're us, and we can't go through an entire episode talking about dudes boning in Japan without getting a little bit of love for the ladies. So Absolutely. let's talk an itty-bitty bit about uh, female homosexuality in Tokugawa, Japan, especially because one of our amazing, lovely patrons, Ash Koyama, specifically requested this as a topic, and we had to come to them and say, I'm so sorry, but I don't think that there's enough material to make an entire episode out of it. Uh, we're so sorry that misogyny sucks, but yep. we've got a fun little aside for y'all. Uh, so yeah, so we know very little about female relationships in pre-modern and early modern Japan, as we saw was the case in China, though we know even less than we did in China. Uh, some scholars argue, as we saw in China, that female-female relationships flourished in imperial and shogunate harems, but we have actual literal, we have little actual literature from these perspectives. Yep. Guess why? That's because in the Tokugawa era, writers, while they occasionally and very matter-of-factly mention these female-female uh, relationships, they don't really care about it. Why? Because they're men and patriarchy. That's why. That's why we don't have anything. Sorry, Ash. Patriarchy is a bitch, and we hate it. Yay. Um, but, like... I mean, there's not a lot, but it does seem to imply that, like with male-male homosexuality, the Tokugawa period saw an increased commercialization of queer female relationships, as seemed to be true of just all sexual relationships in the period. Some literature suggests that there were female sex workers who specifically catered to widows and women unsatisfied with their heterosexual marriages, which, good job. Yay! We approve. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Wayward Wife, written by Ijima Kiseki in 1717, features a wife who regularly accompanies her husband to the pleasure quarter, where they each separately purchase the services of a female sex worker. Like, okay, you, you, you go for her and then I'll go for her. Neat. Love it. The Life of an Amorous Woman by Ihara Saikaku tells the tale of a female servant who discovers that she was hired to be a wealthy woman's bedmate and alternately play the male and female role. The servant dryly notes, I've had a lot of jobs. <laughs> okay. I love it so much. Yeah. Uh, this is this is my favorite. Uh, so there are woodblock prints of women-women sexual relationships. Uh, they weren't numerous, but they were produced by some of the finest artists of the day, and they were extremely popular at their heyday. Many depicted women using the dual-headed dildo called a harigata or a tagaigata, or, quote, shaped for mutual use. One of our favorite, and these these are, like, large like yeah. you will see in the woodlocks, these are some. This is very... like arm size dildo. Like, uh, yeah, what, this, who was that? This is, uh, th- that's like Katarina Hetzeldorfer yes. size dildos. Yes, like it. You look at them. Actually, I think I'll I'll post it on our website. One of the first photos that I ever took of me and Gretchen goofing around and trying to figure out what we were going to do with this podcast is me just showing her a photo of one of these shungo woodblocks, just going, "That's very large." 
yep. and her incredulous face. It is quite hefty. Uh, my One of our favorites depicts a couple actually using a Tengu mask as a strap-on. There's it's your the, emoji. Yeah, there's your emoji. So it's the, um, if, if you have if you have an iPhone, although I guess it's probably on Android, Android uh, if you look in your emoji and you see the red mask with a very long nose, that's what one of them is strapped to her hips in one of these lovely Shunga woodblocks to use it. So congratulations, Female sexuality loving humans, we have an emoji. Yay. Yay. Can we just make like all masks that have long noses are now like strap-ons in no, our like plague, cultural? Plague doctor would be so painful. <laughs> That's so That pointy. was the one I thought of. I was like the plague no. doctor. <laughs> it's you pointy. Into, you into some kinky shit. It's pointy at the end. <laughs> Ow. That would be, that would be unpleasant. Please don't use that. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. Um, I feel like dildos is also a thing that like we can't go a whole episode without bringing up dildos true. in some fashion. They do show up many a time in history. They're they're quite an early invention, y'all. Yes, they are. Humans have been making them for as long as humans have been humans. Yep. Uh, so it's important to note about these depictions that these situations weren't just male fantasies. These toys, these harigata, were advertised and marketed and sold specifically for dual female use. So while yeah. there was probably an element in these, you know, woodblocks of like, ooh, yay, male gazy fashion. It wasn't the entire story. Yeah, they're making these because women bought them and used them with other, like, people without anatomy were buying and using it with other people without anatomy. This was a thing. It's not just like fetish porn. Like, this was actually like they sold these toys specifically because right. people were using them. And that's awesome. It's not like long nails in porn. Where you know no one's Ugh. really doing that. Yeah. You're like, clearly, clearly dudes made this. Clearly mm-hmm. cis dudes. Cis straight yeah. dudes made this. Or maybe not even straight dudes. I don't know. Gay men probably don't know that you don't want that down there. So anyway, with that- main takeaways and final conclusions other than dildos. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. So our, our final thoughts to wrap up. Basically, as in China, male-male homosexuality wasn't stigmatized for most of its history. Yay! And in fact, had a very respectable place in society. It was something lower classes wanted to emulate because they saw it modeled for them in the samurai and monastic traditions. Really, the only people who were like, what the fuck is this, were Jesuit priests who came and said like, oh my god, all of these monks want to have sex with the boys. Like, every single one. What's going on? Oh my god, I'm so scandalized. <laughs> yes, no no pearl clutching except from the colonizers. Yes. Um, in monastic and samurai traditions, it was highly spiritualized and romanticized. Even the vassal-lord relationship had romantic overtones because of the strong sense of devotion and intimacy involved. And it was only when the samurai class died out and the lower classes started seeking sex work as an outlet for emulating these desires that you have the commodification of homosexuality. And that's really the fault of, you know, capitalism and industrialization and all of that kind of stuff. And also just like fuck colonialism for making Japanese culture ashamed of its traditions. Okay, like that's a conclusion we had in our China episode is just like fuck colonialism. In our China episode, in our Egypt episode, yep. in our Middle Eastern women episode. The Arabic one, yep. 
And every Basically, episode, if it's not about people in Europe, we're going to say, fuck colonialism for making people feel bad about loving whoever they want to do. And we're going to say it in the other ones, too. That's just that's just a running theme. God, spoilers. <laughs> just, spoilers, guys. We're always going to say, fuck colonialism for making people feel bad for being queer. Just so you know. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. So, Gretchen. Uh, yes. To round out this lovely episode... How gay were they? Um, all of I, medieval Japan. All of medieval Japan. How gay <laughs> Just were they? Summarize. Um, Fifteen out of ten tango masks. Ooh, this is what I'm going with. It's a lot of tango yeah. masks. It's yeah, it's a lot of tango masks. They were pretty gay. Uh, I'm gonna go with fourteen out of ten chrysanthemum trysts. Ooh, it's so beautiful. That is very beautiful. And screw you, Horang boys. We got our own flowery love happening in Japan. Mm. Just had to (laughs) reply to the shade, I guess. As as like a young Chigo being like, excuse me, I am a chrysanthemum beauty with my golden buttocks. You may have your Huarong like flower boys, but I've got golden buttocks, bitch. That's just right. In comes the monk, being like, "Actually, I compared you to a bathtub." Shut up. <laughs> Let me have this. <laughs> oh, that is it for today's episode. <laughs> Welcome yes. back, folks. Welcome back. Can you tell we haven't done this in a while? We yep. just we just built up all the jokes. Yeah, we did. We had plenty to weigh in on. So, Lee, where can people find you online? So, when I'm not nerding out about flower metaphors for butts, I am usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on Twitter, crying about Xena episodes on my couch, and also working at a queer history museum in San Francisco. If you come in, you probably will see me. Wow. Yay. What about you, Gretchen? Uh, when I am not talking about Tango Masks and Flower Boys, I am reading lots of books, writing queer sci-fi, writing nerdy media analysis for the fundamentals.com and my own website, gnellis.com. You can find me on Tumblr and Twitter as at gnelliswriter and on YouTube as Baal the Bard. And that's mostly my Song of Ice and Fire analysis and, like, symbolism and mythology, and I'm a big fat nerd. Um. (laughs) History is Gay can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at History is Gay Pod, where we are far more active than on Tumblr, and you can always drop us a line with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at historyisgaypodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy this show and you want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho Salon minisodes, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up on the show, and more. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our patron community along with the amazing... Megan Rose. Emily Cavanaugh. Kelsey O'Regan. Britt. Autumn Michelle, Jay Benton, and Ryan C. Miller. Thank you all for your support. We yes. couldn't do this without you. Y'all are amazing. Thank you for sticking with us in yes. our hiatus. Y'all are so wonderful. We really, really do appreciate it. Yes. Uh, as we mentioned up at the top, you can also buy merch at our History is Gay store. 
click on the shop at our website and make sure to tag us in any photos you post on social media of you with your swag. We're always really, really excited to see anybody sporting a shirt or a tote or anything. It just makes our queer little hearts fly. It's beautiful. Yeah, there were there were some photos that I think like friend mutual friends of ours posted for various prides around the country. They were like, I was at Pride and I saw someone wearing your podcast shirt and I was like, hey, I know them. And you're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's in the wild. It's great. So please, 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 please send us all the things. We will retweet it. We will show you off to all of the wonderful people. Uh, it's great. We love yeah. it. I- I think the best thing that happened was, as we have mentioned, History's Gay got started at a queer femslash convention called TGI Femslash. And this year, we always do this section of introductions where people who are coming introduce themselves to everyone else who's going to be at the con. And like, you're supposed to put, how did you find out about TGI Femslash? And this year, someone was like, I heard about it on History's Gay podcast. And Leah and I were both like, like, oh what? <laughs> like, oh my God, we're recruiting them now. <laughs> we are. Come to DJFM yes. slash, it's great. Except it's sold out, but uh, <laughs> add yourself to the wait list. Hey. Put some calendar <laughs> for next year. <laughs> yeah. So lastly, even if you can't support us financially, we love your love. So please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and we can expand our awesome community, which we just talked at length about because y'all are amazing. We love you all. You make this possible. We love you. So, yep, that is it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Bye.